From Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C., this is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to HPS Insights, a podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies, analyzing the current events impacting the business and political communities. I'm your host, Brian Curtin, Managing Director here at HPS. And today, I'm thrilled to be joined by one of my colleagues at HPS, fellow Managing Director, Jonathan Graffio, to discuss how DC is viewing the ongoing Russia-Ukraine war and the recent omnibus bill, including the Ukraine aid package. Jonathan, thanks for joining us today. Give us just a little overview of what's been happening in DC recently. Sure thing. Yeah, it's great to join this morning. Uh, so I'm Jonathan Graffio, also a managing director here at Hamilton Place Strategies. I come to HPS from Capitol Hill, spent the better part of two decades in uh, as a staffer in the U.S. Senate, first on the, the Senate Banking Committee as a communications director uh, during the financial crisis of 08 and 09, and then more recently as a deputy staff director on the Senate Appropriations Committee. Given your background and experience, why don't you tell us, um, we've seen a lot I guess a lot of um, what the administration's done, but we've seen some movement recently from Congress, particularly with an aid package coming um, out that's included in the omnibus. So why don't you just sort of level set for us um, what's happened recently in terms of, you know, Congress's view on the war and what they're doing about, you know, the Ukraine-Russia conflict? Yeah, sure thing. So uh, end of last week, Congress passed a $1.5 trillion Omnibus Appropriations Act. And for those that might not be familiar with that terminology, that just means that the package of 12 bills that funds the government on an annual basis. Uh, that was supposed to be passed back in the fall before the fiscal year began. That didn't happen. It languished until last week. And usually it's the appropriations bills that will serve as kind of the engine to the train that pulls other things through, other must-pass bills. Um, but this time, the, the circumstances were different. The situation in Russia and Ukraine is was the, uh, I guess you would call it the forcing mechanism for getting the $1.5 trillion through to fund the government. And so what you have in there in terms of Ukraine aid is it's nearly $14 billion, roughly split between the Department of Defense and the State Department USAID that will backfill military equipment that's going into Ukraine right now, um, and it will also provide for you know, broad humanitarian services to address the crisis that we've seen with probably millions of refugees heading out of Ukraine at this point. So I'm curious, you know, I think Congress is probably most famous for being dysfunctional and moving slow. As you said, the appropriations bill, um, you know, ideally should have been passed back in the fall and it's March now, you know, but it seems like with the aid to Ukraine, we've seen them moving super fast um, and the momentum behind it really growing. I think the administration's first request for was for $6 billion for aid to Ukraine. And like you said, it ended up being closer to $14 billion. What has made the difference this time? Yeah, I think it's just the blatant nature of Putin's aggression here. It's so clear cut. And then we are seeing, you know, we see through social media and, and television, the basically the war unfolding live in front of us. And we see hospitals and maternity wards being bombed. And so it's clear cut aggression, as brutal as it can possibly be. And so, you know, I, I think that that serves as kind of the galvanizing force for Congress to to move and provide that kind of aid that quickly. What's interesting to you about how different members of Congress are approaching this crisis? What are they thinking about short-term, long-term? What might we be missing? Yeah, I think a lot of them are torn right now between trying to figure out whether we're doing enough 
or and if not, what would escalate into possibly World War III here? And so I, I think we're in that, that area. This initial aid package has been passed now, but you've seen the debates recently in Congress about, uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be critical mass yet for establishing a no-fly zone. That seems to be clearly in the escalation camp from most members' perspective at this point. But you saw recently kind of a different shade of that where should we be providing aircraft in, to Ukraine? Even now, it's like, well, we're providing drones. Well, if drones, you know, do the same function essentially as what planes were going to do, is that escalation? And so now you see this, these different shades of this debate in Congress. And I don't, I don't think they have a, it, well, they definitely don't have kind of their a handle on it just yet. So it's going to, it's going to continue to play out. How much do you think, um, President Zelensky's appeal, personal appeal to Congress? Um, really made the difference here. You know, I think one, they had a private briefing of maybe a few weeks ago, and then, you know, an address to the entire Congress this week. Has that made a difference? I think given the nature of what's happening and how Zelensky has emerged as a leader here, I think it's impossible not to be moved by it. The emotion that that sparks, uh, you know, and he was smart. He appealed to our own national tragedies, Pearl Harbor and others. Um, you know, he's been, he's been compared to a modern day Churchill during the Battle of Britain. I know that you're a, you're a great student of Churchill yourself. I personally think that the comparison is apt. Um, so it's, it would be hard not to be moved by a leader that is standing in there and fighting and he's pleading for help. But at the same time, he's, he's showing such incredible resolve. I'm curious what you think, you know, we've seen sort of an emerging thread the last week or so where, you know, there's been U.S. intelligence reports, EU intelligence reports about possible Chinese military aid to Russia. So I'm curious to get your perspective how much of what Congress is thinking about right now is about Russia right now versus how much is about long-term strategy um, in competition with China? It's a great question. I, I think it's probably the central question. It's the, the China question overhangs everything. It already was before the decision began folding in Ukraine. But thinking long-term about what our reaction to Russia, what message that sends to China any thoughts that they might have about invading Taiwan. Yeah, I think that every move that Congress and the administration makes has that in mind, how, how it's going to impact things with China going forward. Um, um, and I, I should add, I, I mean, I saw, I think it was yesterday that Senator Rubio and others introduced a bill that would sanction China if they help Russia skirt our sanctions, which have, you know, by all accounts, been been working pretty well. So, that, you know, to your point, Stratton, you know, China, China overhangs this whole thing and members are absolutely thinking about that. So I guess maybe my question, particularly given your background, your experience is, um, you know, the midterms are, you know, still seven, eight months away. Hopefully this conflict will be done by then. But if it's not, this conflict is still dragging on and Republicans pick up one or both chambers of Congress. Do you expect a change in their approach to this? Um, I mean, it seems like so far the approach and the, the the reaction by Congress has been pretty unified and pretty bipartisan. But I'm curious if there might be any subtle changes that we might not expect. It's so hard to predict that, especially in a in a midterm year. I, I don't. The short answer is I don't think we know yet. Uh, I, I think you know. I, I wish I could say that I'm optimistic about there still being bipartisanship going forward, but I've I worked uh, you know on Capitol Hill long enough to know you know it, I'm 
call me skeptical in other words. Uh, crises just seem to unite us a little bit less and for shorter than they did before. So I don't know if power does change hands. I'm not sure. I think you'd probably see a little bit more of a push for more aggressive action if if things are somewhat still like they are now. But, you know, you know, you, you watch these things, you, you know, that there's kind of that more libertarian isolationist wing of the of the party that is not for being more aggressive um, and has always kind of revolted against the, the more neocon minded people. So that's my long way of saying it. We'll, we'll have to see how it plays out after over the next several months. But hopefully, like you said, we're not still dealing with it at that point. But who knows? Well, I like to say it's great being a pessimist because either people do expect exactly what you expected or they wildly exceed your expectations. <laughs> so let me uh, turn around and ask you some questions now. For, for those of you who don't know, Stratton is our resident expert on all things energy markets, all things Russia. He spent a significant amount of time over in Russia studying and uh, has, has always maintained an interest and followed things very closely there. Um, I, I'll put in a, a brief plug. If you go to our website, HPS Insights, you'll find a an incredible primer that he put together on the situation. It, it goes through the historical context between Russia and Ukraine, the political context, and certainly the, the economic interests that are driving things right now. Um, so would encourage you to check that out. Um, but so let me just dive right in there, Strat. You and I have, have talked some, and I think it would be great for our listeners to hear this. You've, you've talked about the historic volatility in energy markets and the implicate there. Let me just throw it over to you and broadly, if you'll sketch out kind of where we are right now and where you see things headed. Yeah. So, I mean, this is probably the, it seems like the, the biggest um, domestic impact that we've seen, you know, coming out of this crisis is concerns about energy prices and even more specifically, let's just say gas prices. Um, Russia, as everybody knows, is a large exporter of energy. Um, to put it in context, globally, I think we consume about 95 million barrels of oil a day. Russia is the number one, number two exporter of about four and a half million barrels. So it's not that they represent a huge portion of the overall market, but they represent a big portion of the export market. So a lot of the concerns driving gas prices are really about what's going to happen in the future, not what's happening now. Because right now, energy exports have been exempted from sanctions, but people are concerned, you know, that eventually if this crisis and this war drags on, that's where the EU is going to go. That's where the US is going to go. That's where Japan is going to go. That we're going to start finding ways to sanction energy exports, which is going to put a supply constraint on energy. How we've seen that, seen that um, play out is a wild ride in the oil markets in the last week or so. Even two weeks into this conflict, we saw oil hovering right around um, $100 a barrel, which is about exactly where it was before the conflict started. I think before the conflict started, it was $96, $98. And then all of a sudden, in the course of a couple of days, it went up to over $130 a barrel. Historic increase, historic high, which really drove you know lots of concerns around the world about you know inflationary pressures. And like I think like seven of the eight last recessions have been have um, been preceded by high energy prices. So it was a signal that like we might be running into a recession as well as energy prices put con put constraints on you know um, consumers activity and production and then we saw prices come right back down 
Um, you know, as we saw lockdowns in China, um, you know, in Shanghai and Hong Kong, I think the sort of counter pressure from is COVID going to slow the economy down, drove things back down. So the very short version of this is it has been a wild week. Um, the market is very volatile um, and we've seen prices start to creep back up again. But it's sort of anybody's guess right now what they're going to do. Very interesting stuff, particularly that I like the tidbit about seven or that eight last recessions preceded by spikes in energy prices. Um, let's talk a little bit more about how things right now are affecting energy policy here at home and where you see that debate going. Certainly it was, uh, you know, when, when the Biden administration came in and shut down the Keystone pipeline, the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline still going, uh, you know, and then this happens um, and we're banning Russian oil. Let's th- talk, talk through with me about, about where you see, how you see this impacting uh, energy policy here at home. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to sort of channel one of my um, grad school professors here when I say that, um, you know, the thing about American energy policy is nobody knows what they pay per kilowatt hour. You know, I have done energy policy for more than a decade, and I can only give you a vague sense of what I pay. Almost everybody knows exactly what they pay at the pump. So for most Americans, and definitely for just like the average American voter, energy policy is what they pay at the pump. And that's what we're seeing now. And the problem is the the what you pay at the pump is a lagging indicator too. Because what happens is if you're a gas station, you see prices in the commodity market rise, you know your next shipment that you buy of gasoline, you're going to have to pay more for. So you go ahead and raise your prices. And then you're much slower to bring them back down because you've already got a sunk cost. That last shipment of gasoline you bought, you bought at that much higher price. So you're not going to immediately lower your prices until you're buying your next shipment at a lower price. So it's also a lagging indicator. And I think, you know, I think a fair criticism of the administration is, and I say this as, you know, somebody who, um, you know, worked in democratic politics is it seems inconsistent that the administration is out there saying, you know, we want to weaken the Russian regime by putting pressure on their energy exports, but we also aren't going to do anything to help energy development here at home. Um, and I think that's really, I mean, you know this um, as well, that's really sort of the, the pressures they have from dealing with a foreign policy and economic crisis, as well as trying to keep, you know, part of their base, you know, which is represented by the environmental movement and particularly younger Democratic voters who care a lot more about environmental issues um, to not seem like they're making a giveaway to the oil and gas companies. Yeah, that's a great point. So this week we saw the Fed raise rates. You've alluded to and talked about inflation here. To to what extent do you think that, I mean, certainly the, the crisis in Ukraine played into the decision there, but talk about how you think those dynamics work and how it'll impact, you know, the Fed's talked about being open to additional, several additional rate increases going forward. Take us through the thinking there and how the energy markets impact things. I definitely think it's part of the decision. I think if if this explanation makes sense, it's it's more of the secondary knock-on effects on rising energy prices that plays a much bigger factor than the conflict itself. You know, we've seen um, the inflationary pressure is being driven by things, you know, specific things like automobile prices, but big commodities like food, particularly meat, but also um, energy prices. And then what's interesting to me, and I don't know if this was part of their consideration, but in the in the food sector so far, we've seen inflation mostly driving prices on the meat side, 
But I would guess that we're going to see them driving um, prices on the grain side now, too, given the role that Russia and Ukraine play in the global wheat um, market as well. So I think that just means overall, we're going to see more inflation around areas that were already hot, which just you know, reinforces the Fed's decision to raise rates. So it seems like the the two big topics that have overhung, you know, is certainly our discussion in politics right now, inflation and and China that we've talked about earlier. Let me bring us back to China and specifically in the context of energy. You know, they're they're in their own precarious situation vis-a-vis Russia right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, to what extent does China depend on Russia for oil? How it, how, how do you think China is looking to position themselves going forward in terms of their energy needs as their economy grows so fast? So I would say China, China's um, sort of really economic relationship with Russia is very similar to Europe's in the sense that they export a lot of manufactured goods to Russia and they import a lot of raw goods, whether that's oil, whether that's gas and minerals. Um, I think China, I think China definitely wants to continue that relationship, but I think Chinese energy policy has generally been dominated by ensuring a diversity of supplies. So you saw years ago, they built a pipeline across Southeast Asia in order that they were able to bypass some of the straits in between Malaysia and Indonesia. Um, so I think although China, Russia is going to continue to be an important source of energy for China, I don't think China really wants to be in a situation where they become dependent on Russia to the extent that, say, Germany is, because sort of energy security in the sense of we have lots of access to different points of energy is much more important to them than say like we can get a lot of oil really easily from Russia. Although as Russian energy production continues to move further east, um, more into Siberia and more into the Pacific east of Russia, where the fields are less mature, um, you're going to see more energy relationships there. But again, I think for China, it's really all about energy security in the form of energy diversity. Fascinating geopolitical dynamics here. We can discuss them all day, but uh, I think we're going to have to leave it there for now. We're sure to revisit these topics in in future episodes. Uh, We want to thank you for, for tuning in and encourage you to check out more of our work and other episodes at hamiltonplacestrategies.com slash insights or also on Twitter, HPS Insights. Uh, For my friend Stratton Curtin, I'm Jonathan Graffio. This is HPS Insights. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights and follow us on the web at hamiltonplacestrategies.com.